Good morning. Hey, thank you for leading us in worship every week. Uh, not just Brian and the worship team this Sunday, but each and every Sunday there are different people who use their gifts as you use your gifts in other ways and uh, serve us as they serve the Lord and lead us in worship. Everything of the service this morning has led us to what I want to talk about this morning, which is uh, Habakkuk 3.19. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, it's in the Old Testament. And if you know where the Old Testament is, then you're getting hot. If you start with Matthew and you work your way to the left, from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, uh, to, what is it, uh, Zechariah, and then just left of Zechariah is Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Habakkuk. If you're coming the other way, uh, get past Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea, and you're getting pretty close. All right. Why am I talking about Habakkuk? 319, which is the very last verse of a small prophecy in the Old Testament from the prophet Habakkuk. And I'm not going to call him Habakkuk. I'm going to call him Hug. Because Habakkuk means embrace. It comes from the verb to embrace. You know, embrace is a, is a sturdy hug, isn't it? So, you know, he, he's called, in, a, in effect, Hug. And if, if, you, don't, if, you'll, if you don't mind and I mean no disrespect by it, but I want to just uh, uh, call him Hug this morning. Uh, keep before us that he is a prophet who speaks on, the, on behalf of the people to God. All the prophets speak on behalf of God to the people, but he begins in the book uh, that we call Habakkuk, he begins by speaking uh, to God, and that's a big part of the book we call Habakkuk. But the very last verse is what sometimes you call, I've caught on to it since coming here to Grace, since uh, becoming part of the family of God here at Grace, a life verse. Uh, I didn't call it a life verse. It was just a verse that I leaned on, that I memorized and repeated. In fact, uh, I put it on my backpack back in 1972. And let me see if I can bring that up. Well, it'll probably pop in here at some point. I'm, I like surprises. <laughs> Keeps us on our toes. But anyway, I put it on my backpack, and uh, for 25 years I backpacked with Habakkuk, or yeah, Habakkuk 319 on the back of my backpack. And it goes like this, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds' feet, that is, a deer's hooves, <laughs> like deer's feet. He makes me to tread upon my high places. And that picture, there is actually a little picture of me up there in the corner. That's from 1973. 
I had that scanned and, and so I could show it to you. That's kind of what I looked like, and that was my pack back then, my, my Kelty before they, they got internal packs. Packs have come a long way. And it finally broke after 25 years, but I've kept it because it has that embroidery, and then it also has a lot. My sister-in-law adorned it with all kinds of, of gifted needlework. Uh, foliage and a big tree and things like that, and it's, it's a kind of a keepsake. But I would hike with that pack on my back because I wanted people that I passed to see that I was powered by the Lord <laughs> and uh, to have a moment to read Habakkuk 3.19. Well, it for me was about faith and mountaineering. Next week, by the way, I'm going to do another life verse, and that'll be 1 John 2.10, so you can read ahead. 1 John 2.10, make a note. And I hope you'll be meditating, and uh, maybe you'll memorize and make a part of uh, kind of the uh, bookshelf of verses in which uh, kind of your go-to verses that encourage you at, at, at special times or at all times, as these two verses have really been kind of a rudder in the water or um, a true north on the compass for me. Uh, they, they keep me in the right place, in the right mindset, and they often come to mind. The interesting thing is that for a long time, I was, uh, I loved Habakkuk 3.19 and uh, uttered it many times a week many times a day, and I didn't really know about the setting. You know, you would think that the setting for this is like the High Sierra or the Alps. I mean, you know, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He makes me to tread upon my high places. This is a mountaineering verse, you know. This is a backpacking verse. But it's not set in that kind of a setting at all. In fact, if we just look at the verses around verse 19, like if we back up a couple of verses to verse 16, listen to what Hug says. I he, he says, I hear. Now, let me just, before we go on, let me just say, he says, I hear two times in this chapter. He says it in verse 2. And he says it here in verse 16, and that'll become a little bit important as later on, I hope. Um, but it, it, I would translate it, I have heard. You know, it's sunk in. And he says, I hear. And here's what happens to me when I hear. My body trembles. Have you ever gotten news that makes your body tremble? Maybe you wouldn't put it that way. But there are, there are words that come to you, and, and it just affects your whole body, your whole being. There's kind of a, an unusual hum, you know? Um, a strange feeling in your body because of what you've heard. And then he says, my lips quiver. Have you ever gotten news? Have you ever heard words where your lips quiver? Do you know what that's usually kind of a prelude to when your lips quiver? Maybe tears? 
Sometimes when your lips quiver, they quiver because you're very, very sad. And maybe you're very, very sad because you hurt very, very deeply. And whatever it is that you've heard contains something that makes you afraid and feel vulnerable. Nobody likes to feel vulnerable. We associate it with humiliation. We associate it with feeling like hurt because we feel that we are hurt and we can be hurt more because we're so weak. You see, this is, a, this is not an easy place to be, and this is where hug is in verse 16. Listen what else, to what else he says, rottenness enters my bones. Rottenness. I always, I think of something melting. And this rottenness makes him feel like he's kind of disintegrating. He doesn't have strength. The strength is running out the bottom of his feet. It's just leaking. And then he says, my legs tremble. Have you ever felt your legs tremble like you aren't even steady enough to to keep your balance and to stand and, and maybe you, you, want, you might be feeling that vertigo that makes you feel very dizzy. It's okay to have just a moment of dizziness, but when you can't seem to shake the dizziness, you're looking to stabilize yourself. This is where hug is at. I find that amazing. This is not a guy who's passing people on the trail and just, you know, chewing up the mountain with his strides. This is a guy who's about to lay down because he can't even stand up. He's in a really bad place. And then we come to this wonderful word, yet. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is the context. In fact, this chapter, chapter 3, is a song. I appreciated all the songs in a new way this morning, and I feel like I love songs anyway. But he kind of took it to a whole no level because all of chapter 3, the setting of verse 19, is a song. It's a part of a song. In fact, verse 16 is kind of unusual. I, in music, I'm, the experts tell me this is like a bridge. Verse 16 is a bridge within this song. Go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. It begins this way, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigeniath. <laughs> and then look at the very last words. 
to the choir master with stringed instruments. These are instructions at the beginning and the end. Shigeniath has to do with either the melody or the the toning, or, or, you know, some, some scale of music. And in the very end, there are instructions to the choir master. Everything in chapter 3 is going to be sung. Do you know what the setting for this song in chapter 3 is? The last verse of chapter 2, if you just turn back the page and look at verse 20 of chapter 2, the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And what came before that in the first two chapters? Well, it begins, it opens with uh, Hug saying, are you there, Lord? Lord, are you there? Do you care? Is it fair? Lord, if you're there and if you care, do you think what's going on is fair? That's really how he begins. He's talking about things right in his neighborhood, right in his city, right in his country. He's looking at things deteriorate. In his view, the world is coming apart at its seams. The good old days are really the good old days. And the new days are discouraging and disheartening. In fact, he says, if you're there, and he says this in the very first four verses, he says, if you're there, this is what's going on. There's an outcry, violence, violence. There's no justice. There's no fairness. There's no equality. Your law is not observed. Arrogant people are taking advantage of Weaker people. Are you there? Do you care? Is this fair? And then in verse 5, God answers. And he says, Oh, I'm here. I care. No, it's not fair, and I'm going to deal with it, and I'm going to let you in. Yeah, that's what the Lord says. He says, I'm going to let you in, but I just want to warn you, it's going to rock your world. You're not going to believe it. And he goes on to describe a situation. He says, over in the land of the Chaldeans, in Chaldenia, there is a people that I'm going to raise up, a great people, and they're going to come roaring across. You've never seen anything like it, and they're going to destroy everything in its wake. He calls them an arrogant people, and Hug cannot believe it, just as God predicted. In fact, in verses 12 through 17 of the first chapter, he says, and he's so respectful, it's beautiful how he addresses the Lord. 
starting in 12 and 13 in particular, but basically he says, Lord, he says, this isn't you. What you do, make it untrue. Lord, this isn't you. This isn't what you do. Make it untrue. And he goes on to talk about the situation. And he waits. That's at the beginning of chapter 2. I'm going to wait. He's complained twice to the Lord. The Lord has answered him the first time. He waits in chapter 2 for the Lord to respond, and the Lord does. He says, I want you to write everything I'm going to say down. I want a record of this. You're going to need it. You're going to need to refer to it. You're going to need to lean on my word. And then in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, comes a verse. It goes like this. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Quite specifically, it's the upright, the righteous ones will live in his or by his faith, referring to his faithfulness. They're going to they're gonna live by putting their trust, putting their faith in his faithfulness. And that became the rallying cry of the Reformation in the 16th century when God raised up men and women who said, man, we got to recover our living faith in God. We got to live by faith alone. And it started what's called the Reformation. And many Protestant churches, the whole idea of a Protestant church out of a protest grew and free churches, and our church, and our background, is that Reformation built on this verse, built on this notion. Even the Jews themselves said that in the Old Testament, Moses gave us 613 commandments, Micah 5, and Hug gave us one, the righteous shall live by faith. But when God says this to Hug, he also says, I'm raising up arrogant ones. They're puffed up. They're puffed up. They're inflated. They're so full of themselves that it's only in their own strength, in their own ability to control things that they really trust. And he, he describes them in the balance of chapter 2 in verses 6 through 20 with woes. Woe is, woe is, woe is. Here, I'll give you an example. Those puffed up people. In fact, in verse uh, 4 and 5, it says those puffed up ones, they're not right inside. In fact, the word is upright. They have no, they're just not they're not good. You know, they, they've lost their goodness. In fact, in the Hebrew, it means they're not upright in soul or nefesh, in their being. Contrasted with them are those who remain faithful to the Lord, 
those who trust the Lord, even though those from the area of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, if you will, even though they are coming, he says, they are the puffed-up ones. And even among his own people who have been puffed up, they're going to be tested under these conditions. And God is using this to sift and sort, as it were, and purify his people. And let me just mention right now, so I don't forget, the purpose of that is contained in the song of chapter 3. That is the song of faith in the Lord. And it's in verse 13. It is to redeem his people and his Holy One, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, that that Messiah, that the line of his people might continue under the birth of the Messiah, because this is 600 years before Jesus is born. And so it is in verse 6, for example, from 6 to 20, but let me just give you some of the woe to the puffed up people who lust for wealth and do anything to get it if they can get away with it. Verse 9, woe to the puffed up people who think truth and justice is for others and trample it in their quest for power and the pursuit of their own advantage. Verse 12, woe to the puffed up people who consider any life other than their own worth less unless it has some value for them. Verse 15, woe to the puffed up people who abuse people for selfish and lustful desires regardless of the shame it brings on them and themselves. And verse 19, Woe to the puffed up people who worship these things that have no breath, no life, instead of the living God. That is, idols. There are people who name the name of the Lord that live like that today. And there were people in that day who lived like that. That's why, that's why Hug began crying out, because he saw this kind of thing among his own people, his own city, his own territory, his own nation, just as we do today. And we cry violence. Is there no justice? Where are the good old days when people respected the law? And Hug cries out. Are you there? Do you care? Is it fair? And God responds to Hug. I'm here. I care. It's not fair. And in that case, he raises up a people. He almost fights fire, as it were, with fire. But in the process, he wants his people to rise to the surface, to recognize that behavior, and with him and his heart, say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't talk like that today. I understand that. 
but we should be distinguished in life by a life of faith. A life of faith. And a life of faith is not faith in others, faith in things, faith in our own abilities. The puffed up people have faith, but they have it in themselves. This faith is a faith in the faithful one, in the Lord. And it's fueled by his heart. See? It's, it's fueled by his values, his love, his goodness, his justice, his fairness. And those who believe in him are going to be distinguished from the puffed up people. They're going to be people of a different quality, people of a different character, people of a different spirit, people of a different buoyancy, you know? Even people of a beauty with the very countenance of the Lord. We need that in this world. We need that in the, what we call the church. The church is to be comprised of people like that. And so when it comes to the end of chapter 2, yeah, Hug is pretty discouraged. He's heard, you see. God is in his temple. Boy, when you realize God is in your temple, what, God is in his temple. In effect, that's, that's what sometimes we say, God is sovereign. But let's be people of heart and not just words when we say that. And I love the beauty of that expression. He is in his temple. And then it's at the whole world is silent before him. And in that silence, a song is brought. This beautiful song of chapter 3. And it begins, I have heard. And I stand in awe. And then in three stanzas, that's very important. Each one ends with salah. Sometimes you're familiar with that from our psalms. Some of the English translations put the salah in so you can actually see the three stanzas. And basically in the first stanza, they recount God's majesty and his mighty acts. And then in the second stanza, his purpose it talks about him coming forward as a great warrior. He takes up arms to do battle on behalf of his people. And that's very important. But the purpose comes through. It is to deliver his people and his Holy One, the Messiah. Because that Messiah is our Messiah. 600 years later, and that Messiah is the Christ, which means a Messiah that we look back to and worship and serve. And then in the third stanza, it's all about his victory. But just think, if you take those three themes before the bridge in verse 16, and you think about that in your Christian life, in your daily life, the idea of re rehearsing God's mighty acts, remembering his purpose in his mighty acts to deliver, 
and his victory. Then when you think of him in, as being in his temple, wow, that, then you, you grasp his sovereignty. And like, just like Hug, you can admit, I've heard. I don't know what you've faced this week. Maybe you can draw upon some of those daily things of this very week where there were those moments where you were faced not with something like the Babylonians bearing down on you, but something smaller that caused your head to spin, to cause your lips to quiver, to make you feel like internally you were decaying that you had no strength in your legs and that you were going to fall over. But with Hug, just as human as him, when you recount who it is you serve and where it is you put your faith, and the one who loves you and is your Father, the Almighty God, when you gain that perspective, you say with him at the end of that verse, yet, yet, I love that, yet, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You know, in a way, yet is an acknowledgement that God knows we're human. Because that yet is put in there to make place for all of our weaknesses. Sometimes we try to hide that. You know, so I'm sure most pastors are just like me, but... I, and I appreciate it when people say, we, we like it. When you are transparent. You talk about your own foibles, fears, and faults. You, you join us in this thing. You use we, not you, because we're in this together. And you, you're trying to help us understand what God has taught you this week so that we might, so to speak, catch up with you and climb with you. That's exactly it. And you know why? Because of yet. There has to be a yet, because before the yet is our weaknesses and our foibles and our, our feeling unworthy in the sense that, ah, I didn't handle that well. We have to kind of catch ourselves sometimes in mid-sentence because we reverberate, we, I didn't want to say that. I wanted to say we return to our old ways. You know, we fall into that human nature. And that's the beauty of God's Word because we're just like Hug. I mean, he's a prophet. But we have the same concerns and we have even the same heartaches. And we are just like him because we can say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like hind's feet. He makes me to tread upon my high places. I love that verse. You should memorize it. I like the King James. It's just a little, I don't know, it's got an edge to it. I like that word tread. See, Hug is facing a situation he's never faced before, just like you and me. It's always the new situations that catch us off guard, that get us. 
And this one is biggie. This is really big. I mean, this, this is really big. There's going to be some suffering. That's the background of this verse, suffering. Is there a place in your faith for suffering? Is there room? You know, when you think about the Christian life, is there room in your idea of the Christian life for suffering? Have you made room for suffering in your view of the Christian life? Because from cover to cover, suffering is a part of the life of faith. And if you don't make room, then you're going to think something's wrong when something isn't. You're going to have real difficulty trusting the Lord when you think this shouldn't be happening to you. The best way to prepare is to not only admit that suffering is a part of the Christian life, but to prepare in the day-to-day -day things that we face. It's not as big as the Babylonians bearing down on us. I have yet to suffer anything of that nature, nor have you. But yet, when we watch news, when we get online, we're aware that there's a big world out there, and it's scary. There are people who name the name of Jesus Christ right now, whose entire lives have been overrun by Babylonians called ISIS. Their sacred shrines, their church buildings of years and years and years, loved ones in their families, it's all been overrun. Some have fled and they have no home to welcome them. Do you know that there are people who actually go into those situations in both Syria, where there's a civil war being waged by the king of Syria and even his own people. And there are workers who go into that situation to bring aid and medicine and help and they also do that in Iraq. And, and in both places, on top of internal strife, ISIS has moved in and is taking over chunks of both of those great nations. And there are aid workers going in to ISIS-held territory trying to help people who have not been able to leave, who are suffering from hunger, and a life turned upside down. Their world has been rocked. I read this week. I, you should check it out. It's, it was a, a multi-piece done on, and I cannot remember her name, and I'm so embarrassed about this, but a young, a young woman, a young Christian, and this is by ABC News. So if you go on ABC News, it'll do it. She was held for 19 months by ISIS, tortured, put two things I can't even talk about. 
And yet all those who were held captive for periods of time while she was there. She even helped other girls escape, and she wouldn't escape with them because she was the only American, and she knew that if she went with them, they would go after her and catch them all. She basically laid down her life and never gave up her faith in Jesus Christ. There are people that go through that while we enjoy abundance that some people have never enjoyed in this world. Never. They don't know what it's like to be a first world citizen. And yet we get overthrown by gossip or the insult of a friend. And I mean, it may even be just a perceived insult, not a real insult. Or we give up our faith, or we doubt our faith, and there's room for doubt in faith. Boy, there's room for it all, because there's a yet. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Yet, I shall rejoice. I will rejoice. But before the yet, and without the yet, there are things that, that we go through sometimes that we impose upon ourselves and we're overthrown in our faith because we've actually placed our faith in another person instead of the Lord. We've placed our faith in a leader instead of the Lord. We've placed our faith in the government instead of the Lord. We've placed our faith in an institution or the, what we expect of a John Venom or somebody else that we look up to. And I hope I don't let you down. But goodness sake, I'm not the Lord. I'm going into the Lord with you, shoulder to shoulder. I'm pointing you to him, just as you and I have to point others unto him. Somebody said, and I, I don't know where it all began, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Don't you all love that? Everybody, I, you know, but in honesty, uh, I don't live that way, and neither do you. But Hug and the people of Hug's world and some of the people that are Christians out there and the people of their world actually do live and thrive that way. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's all the Jesus plus everything that we enjoy. We love we loved Jesus. He's the greatest. As long as we've got everything. It's everything plus Jesus. But I'm trying to help you understand is we get another picture into the normal life of a believer who lives by faith, cover to cover in the Bible, in the work and life of Habakkuk, And it's the picture of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's what brings him to such great joy at the end. Because in 17 and 18, he describes, he describes everything that they rely upon. Every fruit-bearing plant and animal 
and every animal. That's their whole economy. That's the Middle Eastern ancient economy that he describes in verse 17. Though everything fail, yet, yet, Jesus plus nothing, yet I will rejoice in him. I've taken inventory this week, and that's my homework for you. I think that's what we need to do with a passage like this. You know, I mean, I want us to know joy. We need to go out of here in joy. That's really appropriating the message of hug. But along the way, we need to anticipate things. And we need to realize, will I be ready? Will I be faithful? Start with the little things, the daily things. Day-to-day faith, every moment faith, at home, at work, at school, in all the little ins and outs, work on the details, those first world problems, those middle class problems, those well-to-do problems that we have because we have so much. Work on those things, the day-to-day stuff, and then the someday stuff, you'll be ready for. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close this in prayer. I'm so thankful for the Lord in my life. And you know, when we sing Sunday to Sunday, try to think of that. Remember Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, that it's a song. Sing those songs as though you're putting your prayers to music. There's there's great power in music. It helps the uh, the left side of the brain work with the right side in great ways. And... uh, I want to remind you as I pray, when I say amen, I'm going to be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, deacons. If you have been drawn to the Lord because of something that he said to your heart through the Holy Spirit this morning, we invite you to come. Bring that in prayer. Maybe it's to come to the Lord himself. You come. Maybe it's to bring someone else in intercession. You come. We'll pray with you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in him that we know you and we have such confidence and joy and faith. We praise you for your salvation in Jesus Christ and the ongoing work and presence that you have given us in the Holy Spirit. We praise you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.